0: good morning. Let's turn to the text that uh, Matt so well read this morning. That's a challenging passage to read. (laughs) There's some interesting words there. Um, He did a good job doing that. This is a challenging text. I will tell you that as I get to the end of this sermon and get to the end of this text and consider all we consider, as I've been studying this in my, in my study the last couple of days, I end up crying at the end because of the tremendous sacrifice of Hannah giving her son and every year giving him back again and again and again. It is Mother's Day. We're so grateful for... Those of you ladies who have taken on that tremendous responsibility and what a privilege and joy as well. Abraham Lincoln once said, no man is poor who has had a godly mother. And there's some truth to that, certainly. What a privilege for any of us to have a mother who is sweet and kind and loving and godly. The Bible provides us with a number of illustrations of godly women. We have, of course, the virtuous woman of, of a Proverbs 31. We have Mary, the mother of Jesus, as an example of a godly woman. And we have Hannah here in 1 Samuel 1. And by the way, I would encourage you, take a little time this afternoon, maybe read chapter 2, her prayer. At the end of all this, we see her prayer, and it is wonderful. The description of Hannah in this first chapter of 1 Samuel highlights the fact that she was one of the most godly women mentioned or described in the Old Testament. There are things said of her that are said of no one else, no other woman in the Old Testament. She is described here as going to the Lord's house to worship. No other woman in the Old Testament is said to do that, though certainly they did. But she's the only one the Bible states had done that. She is the only woman shown making and fulfilling a vow to the Lord. Her prayer here in chapter 2 uh, is one of the longest recorded in the Old Testament, and it has a, 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 one of the um, greatest number of the utterances of the Lord's name. She mentions the Lord by name 18 times. She is shown to avoid the faults of Other women in the Old Testament who were infertile, unable to have children. Remember the words of Sarah in Genesis 16. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me. The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Though, of course, there was a promise of a child. The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go to my servant, Hagar, her servant. Go to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. I don't see Hannah doing anything like that. One of the most wonderful things about Hannah is that she marks a turning point for the entire nation of Israel. In her English Bibles, we'll find uh, Judges and 1 Samuel, and then you'll find the book of Ruth right in the center. In the Hebrew Bible... It's judges and first Samuel right together. Because those two books provide a, a, a chronological, a seamless chronology of Israel, a chronological history of Israel. When you see judges and first Samuel, they flow together. The book of Judges ends with stories of spiritual ineptitude among the Levites, among the priesthood, sexual misconduct in Shiloh, uh, uh, tragic military campaigns. That's how Judges ends. 1 Samuel begins exactly the same way. In 1 Samuel 2, 12 through 17, we see spiritually dull Eli and his spiritually corrupt sons, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, operating the sanctuary contrary to the Torah. We see in chapter 2, verse 22, Hophni and Phinehas sexually abusing women who are serving in the tent of worship. So you see Judges, and then you see First Samuel, and it's a seamless history. At the time this book was written, First Samuel, Israel was spiritually bankrupt and morally corrupt. And there was seemingly nothing on the horizon that was going to change the direction of Israel. And then along comes a mistreated, distraught, barren woman who begs the Lord for a son and who will gladly give that son back to the Lord for his service and worship and glory. And God, in his kindness to her, and in order to accomplish his perfect plan, gives her a son. And he develops this little one into a faithful prophet and a kingmaker. This little boy, who faithful Hannah begged for, while surrounded by apostasy and corruption, becomes Samuel the prophet, the man who eventually anointed David, the son of Jesse, to be the first dynastic king of Israel. And it's, of course, on David's throne that the Messiah will one day sit. Faithful Hannah began all of it. She, she marks the reversal of Israel's spiritual direction, heinous spiritual direction. It is with her and this situation, and God answering this prayer in this way, and rearing this boy in the temple, this man becomes Samuel, the great prophet and kingmaker. And it starts with her. Hannah was no ordinary woman. She was a genuinely godly woman and a model for all women for all time. And by the way, as we look at this text, it's not just that we're talking to ladies this morning. She is a model for all of us for all time. There's so much we can learn from her. The point of this text is that godly women honor the Lord and they're overjoyed to serve Him. You see a joy in her, especially when you read chapter 2, her prayer, at the end of all of it. And you see a joy in serving God and a joy in giving her little one to the Lord for His service. Let's pray and we'll look at this text this morning. We thank you, Father, for Hannah and for the wonderful example she is to us. We see in her life, we we pray that these characteristics will be found in ours. Help each lady here. Each woman to love you and serve you. Bless each mother today. Encourage each one. And for each one of us, as men, help us to glean a great deal this morning as well. There's so much for us. Use your word in our lives today, Father, we ask this. In our Savior's name, amen. In this passage, we find three facts that we all need to commit to memory. Three things we need to remember. Ladies, uh, as we read about Hannah here, she is a model for you, but she is a model for all of us. Three things to remember. First of all, remember that you are not immune from hardship. Why, when you read this text, if you read it, go home and read it again. That certainly is one of the main things we see. None of us is immune from hardship. None of us can avoid struggle and difficulty in times of tears. According to verse 5, the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. She was unable to bear children. And this infertility was no accident of nature. This was a deliberate act of God. God closed her womb. God didn't allow her to have children. One of the great privileges, ladies, that you have, if the Lord calls you to this, is to have little ones. I know our culture doesn't teach that. Our culture is wrong, as it is so often. What a wonderful joy and a privilege to rear little ones. Our house gets so busy when our grandkids are there. We are so exhausted when they leave. We have IVs set up throughout the house just to stick in while they're there, just to keep us going. I'm just kidding. you, But boy, it would be helpful. And when they leave, we go, and as we're waving goodbye, we inevitably start to weep. It's weird being a grandparent. What a, wonderful, what a wonderful gift little ones are. We're not immune from hardship. She wanted children. God would not give her children. And by the way, children were a great asset in the Old Testament, Old Testament life, in ours as well. Uh, the children strengthen the family unit. They provide more hands for work. Now, they make their share of the mess, of course, too. But they, as they get older at least, they provide more hands for work. They provide help for their parents in their old age. Psalm 127 clearly tells us that. And more than anything, they, pass on, they allow us to pass on the truths of the Word of God to the next generation and to the next generation so that God will be lifted up in each succeeding uh, generation. As we have children, it is our responsibility to teach them the word, to pass on to them a passion for God, a love for him, and knowledge of his word so that they can lift him up in their generation. And as we have, little ones, it's our great privilege to train them in the word so they can do that. Now, all that being true, there's a very real sense in which having children was part of what God desired Hannah to do. And certainly, that's what she wanted to do. She wanted children. She longed for children, but God made her incapable of realizing her heart's desire. There are a couple things in this text that make it clear, by the way, that this trial of infertility was a a long-standing trial for her. This didn't just happen a few months or a few years. This was years maybe 10, 15 years, maybe more, that she was struggling with this, wanting little ones and none coming. I say that for a number of reasons. First, in verse 2, Hannah is listed first. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other is Peninnah. Normally, you would list your first wife first. So he married her first. And then secondly, why did he marry the next one? Probably because Hannah couldn't have children, didn't have children. So he marries, Ocanna marries Hannah and they try to have children and for a time they try and she's unable to. And so then marries a second to provide children. So a number of years probably had passed there. Thirdly, according to verse four, Peninnah had sons and daughters, plural. So at least two sons and two daughters. How long does, How many years does that take? couple of years, six, seven, eight, I don't know. Again, we're we're talking years now. By this time that we see Hannah's prayer, Peninnah has four children. And then lastly, according to verse seven, every family trip to Shiloh for worship ended the same way. Peninnah taunting and humiliating Hannah because she has no little ones around her. So this trial wasn't a week long, a month long, two years long. This was years, maybe a decade, maybe more, that she is struggling with this wanting little ones, and God will not grant them. By the way, you can be sure that if Peninnah taunted Hannah during the annual worship trips, she also taunted her every single day of their lives. There's not much good here. There's nothing good here you can say about Peninnah. She was the opposite of Hannah, apparently. She was not a godly woman. Ladies, you may think that if you obey and serve the Lord, he'll keep your life, trial, and difficulty free. We all wish that, and we all kind of wish that. If I'm faithful to the Lord, life will be easier. That's just not the case. We see it here. Not only will God allow us to face trials, but often he will specifically send trials. He sent this one. God clearly is responsible for this. He closed for womb. Contrary to the health and wealth gospel, good things may not always happen to God's people. Let me add a couple things here. First, sometimes God may put you through trials that seem to make no sense. On the surface, this one makes no sense. As human beings, looking at this, it makes no sense. You can imagine what was going through Hannah's mind. She loved Elkanah, he loved her. They had a good marriage, apparently. All indications. They were faithful to the Lord. They, they needed children to pass on the Torah, to pass on the knowledge of God. They needed children to, uh, for their own care in the future. And they wanted children with all their hearts. And yet, though all that was true, God wouldn't allow it. This just does not seem to make sense on the surface. Why would God keep this loving, godly couple barren? But he did when those kinds of times come folks, let God be God. If we forget everything we, we talk about this morning, just, just get that you know that, that's a let God be God. God knows what he's doing. He has a plan. Now we look now at chapters one and two and we look at the life of Samuel and how God used him and we say, well look what God was doing." Hannah had no knowledge of this. We look back, she had no knowledge. Let God be God. We don't know what God is doing. How he's going to use our struggles and trials. What he'll produce through them. And You may never know what God is doing. We may go to glory not knowing what God was doing. But let's know he's got a plan and it's perfect. Something else, often God allows trials or puts us into trials ultimately to just simply bring about his own glory, which we do see here in Hannah. But let me read you a text that you probably know quite well. This is John 1, uh, John 9, 1 through 7. We have the amazing story of Jesus healing a, a man born blind. You remember this text, I'm sure. As he passed by, he, Jesus, saw a man blind from birth. Now, this is an adult man, 20, 30 years old, 40 years old. We don't know how old he is, but he's a man. And he was born blind. So how long has he suffered this trial? And all the day-to-day struggles related to it for 20, 30, 40 years, for a long time. This Again, this is a long-term trial. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Certainly someone must have sinned. This blindness is judgment, the judgment of God. And sometimes, by the way, that is true. Sometimes God will discipline, will judge because of sin. Jesus says, no, that's not the case. Jesus says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Verse 6. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed and came back seeing. And who gets the glory for this? God. And how does God get glory for this? By a man being born blind and Jesus Christ, God the Son, giving him sight. And this is certainly the case with Hannah. God ultimately brought the greatest glory to himself through Samuel, the life and ministry of Samuel, but Hannah knew nothing of it. God closed her womb. God used her prayer. God gave her a son. God made her son one of the greatest prophets and a kingmaker. Who gets the praise? God does. Secondly, folks, we'll face human offenses. We saw first that God sometimes allows, sometimes sends, gives trials. Sometimes we'll face human offenses, uh, offense from other people. We see that here uh, in verses 6 through 8. Peninna here is called her, her rival in verse 6. The word literally means vexer or troubler, she's a troublemaker. This is who she This is the designation for her. Hi, oh yes, I'm Paninna, the troublemaker. This is who she is. The Hebrew uh, term rendered provoke in verses 6 and 7 literally means to prod someone to anger. You see this once in a while with children, poking with the, another child, just wanting to see the kid flip out. That's what this woman was doing. Prodding, poking, verbally I'm sure. I don't think she was shoving her, but verbally poking her, prodding her, trying to bring her to the boiling point where she went ballistic. That's, the, that's what she's trying to accomplish. And then this word irritate in verse 6 means to thunder or to make the sound of thunder, or in this case, to bring Hannah to the place of thunder. To bring her to the place where she is wheeling, uh, 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 weeping and wailing. That's the goal of this woman. Verses 7, 8, and 10 all speak of Hannah as weeping. Ladies, people will not always treat you well. People will sin against you. As godly as you may be, they may sin against you. They may sin against you in spite of your godliness. They may sin against you because of your godliness. But understand, people will not always treat you well. Now we see in Hannah, just... Facing anguish and misery. Verse 10 describes her as deeply distressed. Verse 11, she describes herself as being in affliction. Verse 15, she says that she is troubled, literally hard of spirit. In verse 16, she she prays in great anxiety and vexation. What's the bottom line, folks? That life is difficult. Remember, you're not immune to hardships. This is a godly woman, one of the most godly women in the entire Old Testament. And her life wasn't easy. Secondly, remember secondly, that you have at your disposal a wonderful resource. What is that resource? Prayer. Look at verse 15. She says, to Eli, who mistakes her, assumes she's been drinking. And she says in verse 15, I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. We see the content of her prayer in verse 11. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. That no razor touching the head probably references the uh, Nazarite vow. Uh, Again, just communicating that he is going to be set apart to God. So here's the good news. Facing all these trials and all these struggles and all this anguish for years and years, here's the good news. You're not facing that alone. Now, we've been in First Peter, and a couple times in First Peter, Peter brings out the fact that we're not alone as God's people. Right? We've talked about this. We don't face the 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 recipients of that letter, First Peter. We're we're struggling. We're facing trials, uh, a persecution because of their faith, and numerous times Peter brings out, "You're not in this alone." Each one of you believers, you're part of a church family, and you bear one another's burdens. Well, this goes the next step. Not only do we help each other, care for one another, bear each other's burdens, but here we see Hannah rolling off the struggle, the trial, onto the back of the Lord. You're not in any trial alone. We have one another And we have God. You're not alone in this. Hannah's not alone in this. She pours out her soul before God. She rolled the burden she bore onto his back. She did not struggle under the weight of her anguish, and it was anguish. She did not uh, struggle under the weight of that anguish. She gave it to the Lord. She took it to him. Now, we need to, we need to remember or know a couple things. First, know that often God will use prayer to change things. God doesn't always use our prayers to accomplish what we wish. But often he does use prayer as a tool to change things. Look at verse 11 again. It starts out so wonderfully. And she vowed a vow and she said, O Lord of hosts, that phrase is amazing. The, 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 The phrase speaks of God being the Lord of armies, the Lord being the God of all the armies, and the, the point is, he is the all-powerful one. He has infinite armies at his disposal. He's the master of all the powers of creation. He wields infinite power, infinite authority. He is all-powerful. This is the omnipotent God. She goes to the omnipotent God, the only one who can help her. Now, what's really interesting about this phrase, this is the first time it's used in Scripture. This apparently wasn't a phrase that was tossed around a lot. You know, we have in our our Christian world kind of like some Christian lingo with some terms or phrases we'll use often. And so we tend to kind of grab those phrases and they become part of our vocabulary. This phrase is not found in the Old Testament until right here. This was not a common phrase. This was not a phrase she heard all the time from her husband or other godly people. Her pain had made her into a theologian. In the throes of deep distress, she bows before the only one who can really help her. She bows before the God who wields unlimited power. And she says, Oh God of unlimited power. She knew that God controlled her situation. She knew that if God would, he could give her the desires of her heart. Folks, we can't, we can't avoid problems, but we don't have to bear them alone. Here she leans on the Lord and rests in his care. She takes her troubles to him, unburdens herself, and then she rests in the knowledge that God will do what's best and right. Right. But she doesn't hold on to it. She gives it to him and she trusts in him. And in his grace, he opened her womb, gave her a son. He gave Hannah her heart's desire and put Israel, at the same time, began putting Israel back on the right track. So know, first of all, that God often uses our prayers. And secondly, know your place. We have to go to God knowing our place. You see that again in verse 11. In verse 11, she calls herself a servant to God three times. And and the the term speaks of a maidservant or a female house slave. She understands who she is as she addresses God. She knows that she has no rights before God and that she exists to do his bidding, not the other way around. So often God is spoken of as some sort of a cosmic Santa Claus. And we go to him often, we're asking him for stuff and we assume he's going to give it. God's, uh, you know, an Aladdin's lamp. Here are my wishes. So often in our world, that's kind of how it's communicated. No. The Bible clearly does not teach that. She knows she exists for him to do his work, not the other way around. Instead of her, eliciting uh, in her prayer is the idea of submission to the Lord's will. She longs for a son so badly that it hurts, and she will submit to whatever God wants. Folks, we are God's creation. He gives us life and breath, food and shelter and all that we have. There's nothing we have that God has not given. No ability or skill that you possess. Your intellectual level, your athletic abilities, how good you look in a mirror, whatever it is. God has given you everything you have. And so we we are proud of those things. I'm this smart, I'm this good looking, I'm this athletic, I'm whatever. Whatever. We get a new car. We're proud of it. Come and see my new car. It smells like a new car. Here's my new cell phone. Whatever it is. We're, everything that we have is a gift from God. And who gets the glory for that? God. Not me. Not you. God is not our servant. We are his. We must learn to want. Not what we want, folks, but what he wants. She's in a position here where she wants a child, but she also wants what God wants, whatever that is. Lastly, last thing to remember: remember that all you have is the Lord's, and faithfully give it back to Him. Let's just look at these verses again, very quickly. Verse eleven. So here's the basic train of thought: what's happening here? Verse eleven. She prays to God, "O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed." Look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son. I will give him back to the Lord all the days of his life. Verse 20. In due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. Verse 22. Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so he may appear before the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Weaning took two or three years. At that time, they didn't have the kinds of foods that we have. So it took two or three years. Verse 24, And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a -a three-and-a-half-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Literally, the Hebrew says, the child was a child. He is a little one. Verse 27, For this child I prayed, she says, And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He has lent to the Lord. Look at chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe. And take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Folks, we need to remember that all we have is the Lord's and faithfully give all of it back to him. Now just let all of this sink in a little. How many of us would do this? Willingly, happily, give our two or three year old son. Now you bore this child You've been caring for this child, bonding with this child, for two or three years, and he's laughing, and he's running, and he's playing. He's a part of your life. He's calling you "mama." In Hebrew, I don't remember what, what is that pastor doesn't know. I can't believe it. He's supposed to know these things. Just imagine this. Now, again, verses 18 and 19 of chapter 2. Verse 19. She, every, made, she, every year she made a little robe for him and took it to him every year. Do you realize, folks, she saw him every year. She gave him away. Now imagine that. Two, three years, she takes him. He's now been weaned. She gives him away. Now she's in the cart or the chariot or whatever, and they're, they're leaving as a family. And can you imagine that, that, that exit? Can you imagine that saying goodbye? The child, possibly, probably crying because he's leaving his mother. And she is weeping as much as she's ever wept as she leaves him. And every year she sees him again. And every year she leaves him again. She makes a little robe, and every year it's a little bit bigger than last year's. And she takes that little robe, and they're approaching Shiloh, and there he is. I can, I'm not making stuff. I'm not just. I'm just. I can imagine her getting jumping out of the. The, you know, the cart as quickly as she could and running to this child, looking for him, finding him and that reunion and spending as many days and as many moments with him as she possibly could only to say goodbye again. Here's your robe. This is for you. I thought about you all year long. I love you. And then saying goodbye again. And the next year, another robe, a little bit larger, and saying goodbye again. This is torturous. Couldn't Hannah find a loophole in this promise? There's got to be a loophole somewhere. Find me a lawyer. There's got to be one. Surely God didn't really expect her to part with her only son while he was still a toddler. Surely God would not want Hannah to experience the the separation anxiety, the psychological horrors of separation from her only child, and then his separation from her. Certainly God wouldn't want this. This act could plummet Hannah into serious depression. Surely God would not want that. And in his plan, God wanted all of it because of what he was going to do through it. And through all the tears and all the anguish, what he was going to accomplish by this little one being raised in that setting. And if you read chapter 2, the prayer of chapter 2, you see that Hannah was glad to be able to do this. Now, by the way, if you look at uh, chapter 2, verse 21, God gave her three more sons and two daughters. She wasn't barren any longer. And certainly, if God cared for her, watched over her, drew near to her before she had Samuel, certainly in this Type of anguish leaving him year after year. God, of course, was drawing near to her then too, answering her prayers. Hannah went. Hannah was not happy to be separated from her, from her little the little boy. But she had learned to want what God wanted, and so she did. Because she loved the Lord more than she loved anything else, or anyone else. Lincoln said, no man is poor who has had a godly mother. What does it mean to be a godly mother, a godly father, a godly woman, a godly man? What does that mean? Well, it means, as far as this text, it means that when hardships come, we respond to them not with complaining, or self-pity, we respond to them with prayer. We run to God who can help. He's the only one who can help. Ultimately, He's the all-powerful one who can help. We pray recognizing that the Lord alone can change our circumstances. We, we, we pray recognizing that we are His servant. We exist for Him. We exist for His glory. And He may not always answer our prayers the way we desire, but that's all right because He knows better than I know. It means that we see everything we possess, including our precious little ones, as the Lord's. And it means that we willingly and enthusiastically give everything back to the Lord, even those little ones. Now, when this service is over, I'm going to run and find Evie and hug her like crazy. And you might too, I don't know, your little ones, if you've got some here. Folks, let's remember this text this week. I encourage you to read this chapter again and chapter two, of the, her prayer. There's so much we can learn from her. Thank you, Father, for this wonderful passage and we barely scratched the surface of it. But thank you for the things we could understand, extract from this chapter. Make us godly people. Help us to be people who respond with prayer to, to life struggles. Help us be people who realize who we are, to know that we are your servants and it's not the other way around. Help us, Father, to give everything we have back to you, everything we own, everything in our hands, everything that every ability, every material thing we possess and our children help us to give it all back to you and desire your honor and glory. Thank you for Jesus. We love these we love him. We pray these things in his name. Amen.